You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, let me introduce uh, what we're going to be looking at today in God's Word. Winfred read from the end of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was David's prayer of gratitude after the Davidic covenant was made with David. And then um, what, what happens in the, in the coming chapters, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, is we begin to see the fulfillment of, of the, the beginnings of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and we will see David's prayer of gratitude be answered by God. Not fully answered and not finally answered. That doesn't take place until Jesus comes and ultimately won't happen fully until Jesus returns. But we see the beginnings of the answer of prayer. And one of the things that we will look at in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning is a term in the Hebrew called hesed. It's translated in the ESV as kindness. Maybe yours says loving kindness. Maybe yours says mercy. Maybe... Um, it says faithful love. But hesed is, is a word that means literally unfailing love or loyal love or devotion or kindness. And it is often based on a prior relationship, on, on another relationship. When I was um, at Dallas Seminary uh, several years ago, um, I was... Uh, Leslie and I were married, and uh, we had Maggie already when we got to seminary, and then Jay was born our first year. In fact, he was born at the end of April, and it was uh, the day of my first uh, Greek uh, final for that semester, and and Leslie was in labor, and I kept thinking, I kept asking the doctor, well, how how long do you think she's going to be in labor? Do you think I can run down and take take the test and and make it back? And... um, she said, uh, no, you, you can't. So, um, anyways, Jay's birth was very inconvenient. Uh, to... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but, so we ended up, after the first year, we had two children. And that next year, um, I got a note in my uh, seminary box, and it was a, a note from a foundation, and this Foundation had asked if I would fill out an application for a scholarship. Um, I'm sure that you know there were lots of folks that 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 uh, were invited to do this, and and primarily it was because I was married and we had kids, and and um, I was working and we were in seminary and had plans for pastoral ministry. But but anyways, to tell you about this group of people that put this scholarship together, there was. Um, uh, between six and eight couples, and I can't remember exactly the, the number of couples. Leslie would know it. I think it was eight couples. And they lived down in South Texas in a, a fairly small uh, city. It wasn't in a metroplex, but they um, had all enjoyed going to a Bible church in their community. And this Bible church was an older Bible church, and their pastor had graduated from Dallas Seminary and as he was uh, leaving the ministry, he was sick, and he, he was um, not long for this world, and they were preparing to, uh, f- for his homegoing. 
And these couples came together and asked him on his bedside. They said, you know what, um, we would love to do something for you, something in your honor. We've been so blessed by, by your ministry to us. You've uh, saved and nurtured many of our marriages and, and all, all of the things that he had done as a pastor. And he told him, he said, listen, I'll tell you what you could do for me. He said, if you, um, the eight couples of you, uh, would consider and pray about supporting a seminary student or a couple of seminary students while they are in school, it would make all the difference. And he told of a story of, of some folks that had helped him and it made all the difference and if they really wanted to do something. And so they at that time said, well, that is exactly what we'll do. We don't even need to think about it. And so they did. And so these eight couples got together and they created this foundation to um, provide scholarships, almost essentially full rides for students while they were in seminary. And they had at any given time five students from Dallas Seminary that they fully paid for their education. Now I'll tell you, I, we got to be the recipient of that. And as I look back on it, and as I've considered it much of my life, I will tell you this, it had nothing to do with me. I was the beneficiary, me and my, several of my classmates were the beneficiaries of a, of a loving relationship that took place and a, and a promise made, an honor made far before, long before I ever got to seminary. And when I got there and the circumstances of events and I got picked out of the clear blue sky and got to be a recipient of this, I was the beneficiary of a loving kindness, of a chesed, based on a prior relationship. It had not, I, I mean, I met the qualifications of what they had, but that was, it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with the relationship and promise made to a man before. Now, that is a picture of what we will see in this text this morning. Now, if you listened to what Winfred was reading, and this is David's prayer at the end of chapter 7, I'll walk through this quickly. But David, he, he again, he, he essentially, after God comes and bestows, lavishes grace upon grace, says, who, you know, who am I that you'd pour this grace out on me? I mean, I'm nobody. Why would you do this? And, and then he, he declares to God in verse 22, God, there's no one like you. And, and, and on top of that, who's Israel? I mean, I can hardly believe that you would choose a nation like Israel to make your name great. And that you do it by blessing us in such extraordinary ways. And then what David does in verse 25, you heard it. You, you probably heard it as Winfred read it. I mean, he, he says, because of this, because of everything that you've said, God, I have the courage to pray this way. And it's David's confidence in God, his confidence uh, of, of, of God's overwhelming him by grace, yet he walks confidently in God's word. David never looks at himself in this prayer. He doesn't size up Israel for, for confidence. He looks at God and he believes him and he says, so God, make your name great. Do all that you purpose to do, all that pleases you. All that you say 
is true. And because of that, I have courage to pray this way. I have courage to walk in the truth of your word. So what the writer of 2 Samuel does then is he, he shows us how God begins to bless David and to bless Israel based upon the covenant that God had made. Now, it's not the final blessing, it's not the final fulfillment, but it's the, it's the very near fulfillment. It's the ripple effects of what God had promised, and it's already going to happen. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, maybe the title in your Bible of 2 Samuel 8 is David's victories. And to sum it up quickly, what happens is, is now David, who has united the kingdom, he's in Jerusalem, there he is sitting on the, on the king's throne, the Ark of the Covenant, which is representing God's presence and the priestly mediation with God. Every, everything's there in Jerusalem. And David begins to now take the land that was promised by God to Abraham. And so 2 Samuel chapter 8 tells of David's victories. David goes as far north as Damascus, probably farther. And he takes all of that land and then he goes east across the Jordan, and he takes that land which God had promised, and then he goes west all the way to the sea and takes that land which God had promised, and he goes south down into Edom and down into the, uh, to, to the wilderness, and he takes all of that land that God had promised. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, immediately after the covenant, immediately after the prayer, you see David's kingdom as king, or, or, or Israel's, God's kingdom through Israel, through David, is now established, the borders from which God had promised Abraham so long ago are now established. It is the height of the Davidic kingdom. It is this beautiful scene of God fulfilling what it is that He had promised Abraham. And so that's 2 Samuel chapter 8. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 9, what you see is how God has fulfilled to David. David's going to turn around and fulfill a promise of his own. David is going to fulfill what he had promised in covenant to Jonathan, who was Saul's son, some 15 or 20 years earlier, this steadfast love, this has said. To remind us, 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, verse 15 says, and, and as Jonathan says this, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan says, hey, look, don't, don't cut it off from me even when all the enemies are defeated. Because of this covenant we have, because of this loyal love we have, don't cut me off. Don't cut my family off. It'll get stated again a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 24. Now behold, I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you'll not cut off my offspring after me. That you'll not destroy my name out of my father's house. And so David swore this. To give you a timeline, when we show up to 2 Samuel chapter 9... Mephibosheth, now let me just say this, that's a hard word. And this chapter's all about him, and I've got to say his name several times, and so if I 
If I botch it, just show me a little grace. I, I would call him, you know, meth for short, but that doesn't work. <laughs> so we'll, we'll go with it as best we can. When, um, here's the timeline. When Jonathan and Saul, at the end of, of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel comes to an end, uh, they die in battle. And Mephibosheth, um, we find out, is five years old. And he is going to suffer an injury in the fourth chapter of 2 Samuel. So you go back, you could read all about it. But what happens is, is um, the word that Saul is dead and the word that Jonathan is dead, and Jonathan has the son Mephibosheth. And David doesn't know about the son. They hadn't seen each other in a while. And so a nurse takes Mephibosheth, knowing that the kingdom's about to change hands, knowing David's about to come king. Saul has been David's enemy, and what you did as king is you killed out all your enemies, anybody that stood against you. So this nurse grabs up Mephibosheth, and she's going to flee with him. She runs out the door or down the road or something like that. She stumbles, falls, uh, Mephibosheth falls, and, it, and it, w- w- whatever the injury was, it left him crippled for life. In his feet, he wasn't ever able to walk. So David, he'll reign seven years, seven and a half years in Hebron. Then he goes to Jerusalem, and these are all the preceding chapters. And then in chapter 9, David's defeated his enemies. In chapter, or chapter, yeah, chapter 8, defeated his enemies. Chapter 9, he wakes up and he says, Okay, how can I fulfill this covenant that I made with Jonathan? This covenant of Hesed. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Saul was the king who who chased David for 10 plus years to try to take his life. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan is David's great, great friend. Who may I show kindness for Jonathan's? sake. The word kindness there is, has said, like I said, an unfailing love, a loyal love, a devotion, a a kindness. There's something in this world and in our culture uh, that doesn't understand this very well. So there was a movie several years ago out of Africa, you know, Robert Redford, Meryl Streep, maybe you saw it. There's this famous Scene, they're sitting out there, the, 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 the landscape is breathtaking. But there's this one scene, and, and Meryl Streep and Robert Redford, they're sitting there, and they're on the beach, and, and she wants uh, him to marry her. And Redford's response is this, do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? Do you think I'll love you more? Because of a piece of paper. Well, the whole story is, is actually sad and um, reveals, the, reveals the irony of that statement. But that's the mentality. That somehow a covenant's a piece of paper, mere uh, empty formality. And, the, and in the course of the movie, it completely misses the point of a marriage covenant because such a covenant never claims to... Uh, to hold hostage somebody's love, but yet to make it secure. So what the world doesn't see is that love, this has said, this 
unfailing commitment that, that truly loves, is, is willing to bind itself to something else, is willing to make a promise, is willing and gladly obligates itself so that another may stand securely in that love. There's a story told by Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on this passage, and it's um, um, the story of B.B. Warf- Warfield, who was an old Princeton uh, seminary th- uh, professor, theologian, v- very uh, important theologian of the 20th century. And his works are still known and they're still read. And, but what Davis goes on to say is what's not so well known is the tale of his marriage. And Warfield, he was pursuing his studies in Germany in, in 1876 and 77. And the time also, so he goes to, over to Germany to study, but it also ends up being uh, his honeymoon with his wife, Annie, which probably was a terrible honeymoon, but that nonetheless. But the story goes that while they were walking, they were on this tour, they were touring uh, the mountains, they were caught in this terrific thunderstorm, and the experience was such that his new wife-to-be, this moment on their honeymoon, she never recovered. More or less, she was an invalid for the rest of her life. It's recorded that Warfield only left uh, her for his seminary duties, but he never left her for more than two hours at a time. His world was almost entirely limited to Princeton and to the care of his wife, and he did this for 39 years. And one of his students noted that when he saw the Warfields out walking together, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her for 39 years. That's what we're talking about when we're speaking of this. And actually, the the kind of has said, the kind of love we're ultimately looking at pales even in comparison to this. Well, in verse 2, it goes on and says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king says, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, the has said, the the faithful love of God to him. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. David, there, there is somebody, but I mean, I don't think that's what you're looking for. I mean, he can't offer you anything. He can't do anything for you. He's, he, he's not going to amount to anything, David. That's what he's saying. So the king said to him in verse 4, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Mecher, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. By the way, uh, Mephibosheth, we don't find his name out until verse 6, but his name means one of shame. The one who is shame. And he goes to live in this place called Lodabar, which means a place of no pasture. That's who he is. David seeks him out because David wants to fulfill this love to his father, Jonathan. You know, grace is receiving what we do not deserve. Mercy's not receiving what we do 
deserve. I want you to think about this for a second. Mephibosheth, by his very relationship with Saul, his grandfather, Saul, who sought to kill David all of his days, Mephibosheth, by his nature, was an enemy of David. The culture would have expected for David to put Mephibosheth to death. But the mercy is that David does not grant Mephibosheth what it is that he deserves. And yet grace is receiving what we do not deserve. Mephibosheth is going to receive that in space. He's going to be the beneficiary of the relationship and the covenant between David and Jonathan. All that is going to take place with Mephibosheth, let's be clear, it has nothing to do with Mephibosheth as a person per se. It has everything to do with David's relationship with Jonathan. He's the beneficiary of that relationship. And so in verse 5 it says this, Then King David sent and brought him to the house of, uh, uh, from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. It's hard for us to calculate what it would have been like for Mephibosheth to hear his name on the king's lips. Ziba never calls him by his name. He either calls him the son of Jonathan or the grandson of Saul or the, or the, the one who's crippled. But David will call him by his name. You think about this. There are two things that are imputed to Mephibosheth, meaning they're accredited to his account that have nothing to do with him. One is that he's an enemy of David by virtue of Saul. That, that is a part of his account, that is a part of who he is. That is Mephibosheth, an enemy of David because of Saul. At the same time, there's also something else imputed to him, reckoned to his account. He's the son of Jonathan. He is the object of David's love for his dear friend. In verse 7, David's words, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus will say this, and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Psalm 23, we read this morning, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and has said shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A Davidic psalm that certainly would have been the song of Mephibosheth. Well, notice this humility in verse 8. It says this, and he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? If I were to size me up, and I've heard everything that could be said about me in all of my life here, I'll tell you the 
The sum total of who I am, David, is that I am a dead dog. What is it that you would show? Kindness to me. Well, you find out the regard that David does show him in the rest of this chapter. All that belongs to Saul and his house, he'll give to his master's grandson. Um, He'll always have bread to eat. Um, He'll have people that, that care for all of the land that was given to him. And then in the end of verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who lived in Ziba's house because of Mephibosheth's servant. In verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Just to remind us, he had nothing to offer him. We'll recap him. He's a shameful thing from a place of no pasture. The beneficiary of a covenant that took place before he was born. He's poor, he's an exile. Born an enemy of the king, yet he is sought out by the king. He is brought to the table. And he's brought from a family of of the enemy into the kingdom of the king. An invitation to be at home in the presence of the king, restoring what was lost. You know, it reminds us that in the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, he meets two men on the way, two men on the road to Emmaus. They don't know who he is, but then Jesus begins to open God's Word, and he says, "In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the Scriptures all the things concerning himself. He's talking about the Old Testament. Jesus opens up and says, hey, listen, I was in the Old Testament all along. He will, and then several days later, Luke records, he goes to the disciples, and they while still disbelieving for joy, were marveling. They said, Jesus said to him, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. Then he said to them, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me, the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And everything written in the Old Testament must be fulfilled in me. We are meant to read 2 Samuel chapter 9 as a parable of the gospel. A surprising generosity. I mean, listen to what David might have done. I mean, he could, he could have been, you know, listen, uh, in totally in terms with the promise that he made Jonathan. He could have said to him, hey, listen, um, I'm going to give you, you know, an estate. I'll provide for you a stipend, a few people to look after you, a safe place to live. Could have left him alone. But instead what he does is he restores to him the entire estate. Provides, we find, 35 servants to work the property. And receives him at the royal table, not once, but for life. This over-the-top kindness is the place that he gives Mephibosheth at the table. We don't want to miss it. We're told that he comes to the table No less than four times here. Everything in the culture would have marked him out as an enemy. Yet for David, who had nearly been murdered by Saul at his own table, now brings Saul's heir to his table. Welcomes him fully and 
permanently into his household and guarantees his safety. Not only guarantees his safety, he exalts him, brings him to a public place of honor. He's lame and without hope, yet he is elevated and he's seated at the right hand of the king. So I want you to hear this morning. God's love's like this. He's not content to simply see us be taken care of like, you know, we, we live across town and on the other side of the tracks and he sends us a check and, and makes sure we have enough for groceries. He, he wants us with him. He wants to honor us as his children. He makes his love doubly amazing when he takes proven enemies, not just potential ones, proven enemies, and we're reconciled to him. Even now, even when, with moments of rebellion and moments of indifference. And what's astonishing about all this is what it costs him. It doesn't, like David, for it, it cost David some land that he had that was his, rightfully, he gives it back to Mephibosheth. What it, what it costs God for us to be elevated at his table, it costs his son's life. Romans 5, 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know that you are safe in the arms of God? How do you know that you are welcomed to be seated at the table? You see, Jesus, who is our greater Jonathan, speaks to his Father on our behalf. Jesus says, for my sake, bring him home. For my sake, they would be fully and forever and in all the details abundantly cared for by God. For my sake, bring them to your table and share, to share with me as joint heirs in the full bounty of your love and your presence. Jesus says, for my sake, treat them as you would treat me. And God's love's forever. John will write, see what kind of love the Father has given us. We should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And Paul will write in Romans, now He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? There's a freedom that that gives us. People who know this kind of love. Safety and security in the arms of God. You know what the freedom is? We can be people who love with abandon. We can love without fear. We can love without being loved back. We can love with great thoughtfulness. We can love at great cost. We can love with over-the-top generosity. We can swear to our own hurt, as God will do in Psalm 15. We can endure tough marriages. 
And we can love those who hurt us and ignore us. For we are saved and loved ourselves. And nothing, we find nothing, not even death, can take away that love that God has for us. Let me ask you this morning, do you know that love? Do you know what it is to be loved by God with over-the-top generosity because of His Son? Not because of anything you've done, but because of the relationship, the promise, the covenant with His Son, Jesus. You get to be the great beneficiary of all that He is. Welcomed to the table, knowing that surely, goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. And that we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you don't, I invite you this morning to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. To bring you into the table. To seat you with the king. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, we're overwhelmed by the grace.